have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to Isaiah 63. I've mentioned to several, I've been wanting to preach this for several weeks. It's a very dear passage of Scripture. And again, I realize it's there in black and white and sometimes it doesn't hit you until you have your trials and adversities. And um, that's the experimental aspect sometimes of Christianity. It's the norm. Um, That's why we should always be crying out, Open thou mine eyes, and I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. So this morning I would like to read verses 7 through 9 of Isaiah 63. Very precious and dear words that he begins here with. He says, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies, and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them, and carried them all the days of old. My text is actually verse 9 and really only a portion of that. We don't have time to open all of this. But I want to look at the fact of this and the first part of verse 9. In all their affliction, he, that is Jehovah, was afflicted. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Now, the occasion of these words is found as God contrasts his dealings with other nations with those of the people of God, that is Zion. In the previous chapter, for instance, he proclaimed that he, that is God, would not rest until he had brought righteousness unto Israel or to Zion or to his people or to the elect, if you will be. And Isaiah 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And that, my friend, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherein is the righteousness of God revealed. God also, we see here in these passages, the context that He will redeem His people. Not only has He said He would, but He will redeem them. Isaiah 62, verse 11 and 12, Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed thee unto the end of the world. Say you to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed, past tense, the redeemed of the Lord. And they shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. That's His people. That's us, brethren. That's you and I as we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are His people, been drawn by the Holy Spirit unto Christ and saving union with Him through faith and faith alone. And then he contrasts, here the writer does, Isaiah does, in chapter 63, with the destruction then of the enemies. 
Here again, you see what he says regarding Israel and, and the, the elect. He's going to redeem them. He's going to call them. He's going to nurture them. He's going to save them. But to the enemies, he says here, he's going to destroy. And in chapter 63, this is represented by Edom. Now, Edom, you remember, are the people or the descendants of Esau. In fact, Esau was given that very name. And Genesis 25, verse 30 says, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Not Jacob was Edom, but Esau was Edom. And so his descendants then are what we would call the Edomites. Now, while Edom was a very real country, a very real nation, yet they are also typical... That is, they foreshadow the non-elect. I realize that's a term some people just don't care for. Even some of the Calvinists don't even like to use it. But it's a fact. If he has an elect, he has some he has not elected. And those will perish in their sins. And there is a type of them in Scripture. And it is the Edomites in our very chapter. Remember, they're Esau. And what does Romans 9 verse 13 say? It is written... Or, excuse me, it says, and Esau, excuse me, I'm reading the wrong verse. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And here Isaiah is telling of the doom of these very folks by the destruction that God is going to be sending upon them. Notice verse 6. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. And while that may be a ongoing thing with his enemies, there will be coming a day when he will tread the wine presses. He will judge the world in righteousness. And they will stand before him and be judged. Now, at this particular time, God was judging Edom, as we see, for with terrible judgments. And then notice verse 7, what we read this morning. The prophet again turns his attention to the great mercy and the loving kindnesses, plural there. It's not just the loving kindness of the Lord, but it's in the plural. The loving kindnesses of God to Israel. And he again shows this to... To, to relate to us this great contrast that God has, His dealings with Israel, or the elect, and over against the dealings with other nations, such as Edom, or as we would say, the, un, the, the non-elect. And he points out here very plainly that there is a difference. If this shows anything, this shows us there is a difference. And this difference here causes the prophet to pause and to turn his attention to the Lord who, as we see here, who is the Redeemer of Zion. God, he says, is their Redeemer in verse 8. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. Verse 8. And then in verse 9, we read, I think, some of the most remarkable words found in all of the Bible. I said remarkable words, and I said some before that. I realize there are lots of remarkable words in the Word of God. Great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. That's a remarkable phrase, is it not? Christ died for His enemies. 
Yet while we were without strength, Christ died. That's remarkable, isn't it? But here I think too are some remarkable words. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. Here is the great difference that God, or the prophet here, points out contrasting God and Israel and God and His enemies. We see here that God identifies with us in such a way that He will never ever identify with them, that is the nations who forsake God. My brethren, there is a difference between those who are saved and those who are lost. There's a difference between us here and them on the outside. And God, as you know, has made this difference. And I'm not here speaking necessarily of the fruits of the Christians and the fruits of the unsaved. That too is true. There's a difference in our walk, in our lives, our conversations, our uh, goings forth than there is from those who know not God in saving relationship. I'm not speaking about that though. I'm speaking about a difference of how God deals with us as Christians with the lost about us. Isaiah notes this difference again in verse 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. He doesn't do that for those who will spend an eternity in hell. He does that for those whom He loves. The point that I want to make here this morning is that He does sympathize with us in our condition. When He afflicts us or when we are afflicted by others, God is with us. Now, we, we know the promise, don't we? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Joshua heard it. The Lord Jesus said it to His church there in, in uh, Matthew chapter 28. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The writer of Hebrews, Paul, writes and says that to the Hebrew Christians. That we don't have to worry about the, what, whether we have food or clothing. We don't have to covet because we have one who will never forsake us. We know that. But there is something else that this verse tells us. That in when we are afflicted, He too is afflicted. Not just that He's with us in the trial, which we would acknowledge, but that that trial also afflicts him. So how can that be? I don't know. Just know what happens. You say he's God. You're right. But the Bible also says God can be grieved. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. How can that happen? I don't know. To be quite honest. Well, I could probably sling out some theological rhetoric here this morning and explain it. But I don't know. But I know it's a fact because my Bible tells me so. In all our affliction, He, Jehovah God, 
the Lord Jesus Christ is afflicted. The pain we suffer, He suffers. The sorrows we suffer, He suffers. The disappointments we suffer, He suffers. In all our affliction, He is afflicted. Remarkable words, isn't it? Amazing. Strange as they may sound to us. And I am trying not to speak blasphemy this morning about any of this that I've said and will say. Maybe it will make us see a different aspect of God that we've ever, never seen before. How that He can love us and pity us and be afflicted because of us. And we're not talking about His essential deity. But again, in that relationship that He has with us, however we might want to explain it without being contrary to Scripture, He nonetheless is afflicted with us. Now, how can that be in the sense that I want to explain it? Well, very quickly, you know, as we've spoken in the past, something of our union with Jesus Christ. We are united to Him. He's the head, we are the body. We are His members. We are, in that sense, and in that figure, and in that metaphor that God has put in His Word for us to see, we are a part of Him. We have His Spirit dwelling in us. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of His. There is that Spirit of, the Holy, the, of Christ dwelling in us. So we are part of Him. There is this oneness that we have with Jesus Christ our Lord. And this relationship in this aspect exists by faith in Him. And it's sustained by faith in Him. But there's also another sense in Scripture that we are one with Him and He with us. The Bible teaches us He did not come into this world and take upon Him the nature of angels, did He? It's not the God-angel that we would quote perhaps in the catechism or we were quoting a creed or we were studying the scripture. That is, in His incarnation, He did not become an angel, but He became a man. He became the God-man, did He not? Look in Hebrews 2, if you want to hold your finger there, we're going to be coming back. Hebrews 2. Here Paul, speaking of the very point that we're making at this, he tells us in verse 16, For verily, or that word there, verily, children, means truly. For verily, He took not on Him the nature of angels, but He took on Him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them or to help them that are tempted. You see, experimentally, experientially, Jesus did not become the God-angel. He didn't take upon him the nature of an angel that did not sin. But instead, he took upon the nature, his nature, us, 
the seed of Abraham. He took upon him, and again, speaking of the elect there most de- definitely, but still the seed are men. God was manifest in the flesh. He took upon Himself Adam's nature, our nature, saved without sin. And thus in everything we feel, everything we experience in this life, He does as well because with that union with Godhead, the Godhead and our flesh. That's the, one of the mysteries of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now I want us to look at the reality of it. And here again is the, the idea here with Israel. And all of their affliction, and all of Israel's affliction, that's verse 9 back in our text, the word there is, the T-H-E-I, or the, pro, uh, the pronoun there is referring to the nation of Israel, God's covenant people. In particular, is elect. He says here, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. Again, at this point in time in history, when Isaiah is writing this, he is speaking of Israel the nation. So let me illustrate this morning the instance of it with Israel, showing the reality of this statement. From verse 8, the commentators agree here in chapter 63 that it is speaking of Israel being brought forth from the bondage of Egypt. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. So if the commentators are right, that that little verse 8 is talking about when God took Israel out of from the land of the wicked Pharaoh as they were enslaved to him, enslaved to a man who had forgotten the good that Joseph had, uh, had done in the land by God. You remember the story, history of Jacob at this time. Look in Exodus, if you would. Exodus 1. Now, I'm showing you how he was afflicted here. Exodus 1 and verse 11. Again, some very, probably words we would be uncomfortable using at times as we begin to explain something about God and how He deals with us. And we might kind of step back thinking, well, that doesn't sound very Godlike in our description of God. But notice, Exodus 1, verse 11, Therefore they did set over them taskmasters, that is, Egypt set over Israel taskmasters, to afflict them, notice the word, to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasured cities, Python and Ramses. And then look at verse 13, same chapter, And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. They weren't nice to Israel. They were very nasty children to the Israelites there in the land as they were in bondage to Egypt. Look at verse 14. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. There was great hardness and sorrow and affliction and roughness as they were being dealt with by the Egyptians. It wasn't a pretty time. They suffered greatly. Then notice chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction 
of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And that's what we've been studying, you remember, in Joshua, the fulfillment of this promise. But notice this, he knows their sorrows. Now notice, that's one way in which God deals with this. This reflects how He's dealing with His people. Now go to chapter 2 and see a remarkable statement again. Verse 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 23. And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage and God heard their groaning And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect. That's what it says. God had respect unto them. Again, we might not like that language being Calvinist and exalting God as we ought to. But that's the word He uses. God had respect unto them. And the word respect in this passage means he had an acquaintance with it. He knew of their sufferings. And in that sufferings, then he could identify with it. And so he delivered them, didn't he? And in our text, it says there, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. And in His love and His pity, He redeemed them and He bare them and carried them all the days of old. Notice back again in Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. We see here that He heard, He remembered, He looked, and He had respect unto them. Think of that. This is how God deals with us. Why, at times we may think He's very far away. Those clouds, as we mentioned last Lord's Day, may be standing there in front of us and we can't see all this, but He's there. And He heard, He remembered, He looked, and He had respect upon them. Can I just for a moment speak to the sinner among us this morning? You come here, you hear all this great stuff about God. But let me assure you this morning, your sin is your master. No matter how young you are or how old you are this morning, your sin, if you're unconverted, if you are a stranger to Christ and His grace, your sin is your master. Just like Israel had Pharaoh as a taskmaster. So do you, and it is sin. But there is one who's mightier than the sin taskmaster, who can deliver, who can save. And his name is Jesus Christ. 
That's why Matthew can write, And he shall bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jehovah Himself says in Isaiah, Look unto Me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I'm here to tell you this morning, it is the sinner He pities. He pities sinners. Sinners He pities. Not the righteous, but sinners. My exhortation this morning is to believe the gospel. Trust in the merits of Jesus Christ. He that believeth in him on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Who is the mighty deliverer? It's Jesus Christ. We also saw that Moses in Exodus fifteen, as he praised God saying of this deliverance from this bondage. He says in verse 11, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy hand, right hand. The earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. See, he saw them and he pitied them. He had compassion upon them and he delivered them. He didn't deliver Pharaoh and the Egyptians, did he? See, there's a contrast here of what God did for his people and what he didn't do to Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh, as we learn from Romans 9, was a vessel of wrath. There's a difference. A big difference. Let me give you another illustration of God identifying Himself with His people and that He feels their infirmities. Go to Judges 10. This is another one of those. You look and you look at it and think, wow, that's something. Judges 10. You know, we can think, well, yeah, surely God feels the sorrows of His people because they're being persecuted. You know, they're being treated wrong for His sake. Well, then, of course He would feel that way. How about when we sin and we're chastened for our sins? You think God feels our affliction then? You say, well, maybe not. I mean, after all, we deserve that. Let me give you this incident here in the life of Israel. This is Judges 10. And here, the people have been taken captive in their own land. That's true. He's going to take them captive out of their land one day. We're going to see. But here at this point, they're actually in captivity in their own land. They've done evil in the sight of the Lord. And they've served other gods. Look at verse 6 of Judges 10. And the children of Israel did evil again. Not just they did evil, but evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and, and forsook the Lord and served Him not. 
verse 7 says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years was the reign of this chastisement for their sin. Not just they had some bad conscience for a day or two or a week or two. They fell out and they broke their leg and a month later it was healed again. No, they suffered for 18 years under the oppression for their sin of serving other gods. Not claiming the God of Scripture. Not claiming the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God of Abraham. But going and whoring after other gods. And then we begin in verse 10. A most tender scene described. Now remember, this is for Israel's sin of having other gods before them. Breaking the first and second commandment. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines and the Zizonians also and the Amakites and the Maonites? did oppress you, and you cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Here is a list again, isn't it? He said, don't you remember this? That's why we said this morning what we did in our Bible study. These lists are for a purpose. To make us remember. He says, yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. You can see God, and humanly speaking, we say, boy, God's frustrated with them, isn't He? He's telling them what He's done for them. He's telling them what they've done and then what He's done for them, how He's delivered them. But they still go whoring after other gods. They won't receive Him as the true God to cry unto. He says, if you do cry, I'm not going to hear you anyway. Verse 15, And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And then notice verse 16. Would you think that was in the Bible? After what he just said to them. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. His soul was grieved. The word grieve most of the time is translated reap or reapers in the scripture. What do you do when you reap? Take it away, don't you? 
It was, as it were, humanly speaking, and in the metaphor that God is talking to us here with, they ripped God's soul out of him. That's how he felt. If we could say that, which is what he says, so we can't say that in the terms in which it's meant to be taken, metaphorically. He was grieved. His soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. What they were going through. The chastisement that God Himself had sent towards them and owned them. And yet He so identifies Himself with them that even when they sinned and are being punished for their sins and He lays hard against them with His chastening hand, what does He do? He's grieved with us. Who here this morning who are parents have not been grieved when they've had to chasten their children whom we love when they've disobeyed us. So it is with God and His people. Even when He has to whip us for our sins, He is grieved with us. Even though we may sin terribly before the Lord, Yet in his chastenings, he sees our afflictions that are caused by his own rod, and he is afflicted with us. Remarkable, isn't it? Lamentation says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. There's two instances. One, we would say out of innocence, Israel was in bondage to Egypt. They were doing good. They were doing well. And then when they, and we saw God was with them and He cherished them and He loved them and He bore with them and He had looked, He heard, He remembered and He had respect. And that we can comprehend. But now we turn to a passage of Scripture where he, they, Israel, has turned their back against Him. And yet He is grieving over them. You see, in all of their affliction, He was afflicted. When we're persecuted by others, brethren, God is touched as well. When we have our infirmities, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory he hath sent unto me unto the nations which spoil Jew. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. When they say those things about you and me, when they do those things against us, whether it be by word or by sword, we, they are touching the apple of his eye. When Paul, who was known as Saul, was persecuting the church and finally God rescued him, he said unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
Who was Paul fighting? The Christians. Yet he was so identified with them. When judgment day comes and we're all standing, the sheep on the right and the, the, the wolves on, and the, the, the goats on the left, he explains to both sides what you did to them or what you don't do to them. You do it to me or you don't do it to me. That's how he explained it, wasn't it? Paul says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ as well. And then the thing I want us to see thirdly is that God does pity us. Notice verse 9. In His love and His pity, He redeemed us. He loves us. He pities us. He redeems us. He bears us. He carries us. It's all the work of Jehovah Christ. Jesus Christ. Our Lord. God's Son. Our Lord's humiliation says this, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him a stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You know, one of the, one of the effects that we learn in trials, we mentioned last week some of the things we learn when we go through trials. I said I only picked out a few. But one of the things we can also see in trials is that is the pity of God, the compassion of God. Listen to James 5.11. He says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. He says, you think about Job. You know about him. You've seen the end of all that. And what does it teach us? It teaches us in that that God is very pitiful. And long suffering. And that he is to us. That's the God whom we serve. Isn't that amazing? How could you be bored under such knowledge as that? Let me close with some quick applications. First of all, in all that comes our way, let me assure you this morning. And though there may be a cloud there, but let me assure you this morning by God's infallible Word, all that comes way to us, God too is touched by it. There's no trial. There's no affliction. There's no sorrow. There's no chastisement that Christ Himself does not bear for us and with us. Casting all your care upon Him. Why? Because He careth for you. And my dear Christian, He does this for us. Just us. This is the contrast. Remember, we began with. It's to us. There's a world of a difference between the Jacobs and the Esau's. Is there not? Surely there is. Well, what should we do during afflictions? What are the many things we should do? This is just a sum. Well, in Exodus 2, verse 23, we read that. And it says, And it came in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. The children of Israel sighed by reason of bondage, and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. One of the things I'm telling us to do here this morning, if we're going through trials, adversity, even chastisement, you need to cry to God. 
Reveal to God our hearts. Reveal to God our sorrows, our sins. That's what they did in Judges, did they not? God, do whatever You please. Just deliver me. They bore their heart to God. So should we. Hebrews tells us, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed to the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go to Him. Go to that fountain that's been opened. Go to that throne that's been opened for us. Secondly, trust in Him. Casting all our cares upon Him, for He cares for us. Roll our cares, as the word Hebrew word means in the Old Testament. Roll them upon Him. Take them off of us. Because they're so heavy, we can't pick them up. So the idea is there to roll them. Roll them upon Christ. And it will be His hand that will be pushing the greatest and the hardest upon Himself. Thirdly, I tell you this morning, worship Him. Worship Him. Psalm 27, I have been very tempted in my trial not to come to church. Obviously, that's one of the trials you have in your trial is trying to be faithful in your trial. There's a passage in Psalm, you can turn there later, about David's talking about his enemies and how they're after him. And one of the things he wanted to do, though, was to be in God's house. That passage has been a has got me to church. If I haven't been here, I've been somewhere else. So it's a sorry excuse we give when we don't go to God's house in the midst of adversities. And that's the example that Israel didn't set. They did go. Listen to what it says. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. This is all going back to what we talked about earlier. And the people believed. And that when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that He had looked upon their affliction, what did they do? When, God, when they had learned that God had seen their affliction, their sorrows... It says here, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. When they consider the long-suffering and the mercy and the pity and how that God is afflicted with them, it caused them to bow their heads and worship. That we must do, brethren. Isaiah praised him, you remember. I will mention, as our text said at the beginning, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that He hath bestowed upon us and great goodness toward the house of Israel which He hath bestowed on them according to His mercies and according to the multitude of His kindnesses. Praise Him for all those things.